everybody. Welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week, I'll be talking about the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer and uh, some client questions that I got that I think are kind of interesting to talk about. Also, I wanted to first start off by saying that often people think that I'm somehow completely driven in terms of looking at material that's only action, thriller. There's a lot of drama writers out there, and they've often been hesitant to hire me because they say, oh, I think of you as somebody who does only super commercial stuff, and I don't write commercial. The element that I've sort of gotten in touch with, or I've been thinking about over the last couple days, is that when it comes to drama, a lot of times writers think of it in terms of, well, I prefer character-based storylines. And I don't like that distinction or to think that there's that much of a distinction because, as you know, I've often said that if somebody can write a great drama, they can also write a great thriller. They can also write a great horror movie. And often it's the writers who understand what character screenwriting is about that succeed across a variety of genres. But here's what I've actually gotten in touch with. What I've realized is that drama is not just about characters. It's not just about people. It's not just about humanity. It's really about cultural conflict. And that is the difference between a drama that's boring and a drama that becomes interesting and entertaining. Drama is about exploring cultures in a few different ways. Often it's about exploring a restrained, uptight system that stifles individuality and personal expression. So we have a character either going into the military or fighting against suburbia or mental hospitals are a place where many movies are set. Because these are extremely tight, rigid systems, and we will have a hero who fights against that system and reveals the ridiculousness of the arbitrary rules that this system has in place. But also, when you think about drama, it's also about culture in terms of just place and time. That's why so many great dramas are set in the South, because the South is traditionally a place that is culturally behind the times. And as a result of that, we have characters who are often stuck in the past. And what we'll do is we'll often bring a character home and often that character has been to the big city or they've been living in a more metropolitan area and now have to deal with the more restrained and often antiquated values of their relatives. Moving on to viewer questions, two questions that I found kind of interesting. So somebody writes me, this sounds like a presumptuous question, but I'm curious. Some advice has been given that a large agency like CAA could easily lose fledging writers in favor of established talent. I can see how this would happen. The advice would be that a boutique agency would stick closer to the writer. Of course, if you land a large one, that's a huge achievement. I asked a question and follow-up, and then he wrote, uh, Let's say an agent from CAA offers to represent someone on his first sale. He has several other scripts. He clearly has enough talent to get the attention. Of course, he'd be thrilled. But in terms of his career, I'm wondering if he'd get the same response and attention or if he'd get lost in the shuffle as opposed to going to a smaller agency where there'd be less competition with higher-profile clients. This is sort of a fantasy question and argument. The, oh, if I had to choose between a huge agency and a small agency, what should I do? You know, in my book, I often pointed out the ridiculousness of a movie like Unfaithful, where Diane Lane is stuck, this poor woman is stuck trying to decide between Richard Gere and Olivier Martinez. Um, it's a ridiculous premise. It's a fantasy premise. Most 
unrepresented writers don't have a choice as to who represents them. There's often not a situation where different agencies are fighting over an unrepresented writer. I remember that I had a friend who was a manager who sold a script, and then the agencies were all meeting with the writer and sort of fighting over him because he had just sold a screenplay to a major studio. But that was a case where he was already represented. Uh, He just only had management and was looking for an agency. So I don't believe that these scenarios ever happen. If they do, my advice would probably be to go with the bigger agency. Smaller agencies always say, oh, we give more individualized attention. And if there's a huge writing assignment, you know, which writer do you think they're going to put up for the job? I would say if there's a huge writing assignment, if you're a smaller client at a big agency, There's rarely a situation where it's like they say to all the agencies, okay, you can only put one client up and CAA puts up their big client and then a smaller agency will put up their biggest client. Um, You're always probably going to be smaller than the biggest client at your agency and that's a good thing. You want other people who are working so that you can work with them and your agency can put you together with them. So I just don't buy this, this particular scenario. It's a fantasy scenario. And you rarely have a writer who actually gets to choose between the representation that's available to them. That only happens after you've established some credibility. And then if you're a formerly big writer who's trying to look at new agencies because you just feel that you need that change, then maybe there will be some competition for you. Or if you sold a script to a studio and you don't have an agent yet, then there will be some competition for you. It just doesn't work out the other way around. Next question is from Lisa who asked me, about what to who asks about writer's block and what do you do when you're stuck on a script and the fast answer is you shouldn't be stuck on a script because if you're stuck in terms of what happens next then you didn't do enough work going in you didn't do the blueprint you would never start building a building without doing a blueprint and it is a horrible misservice to writers to suggest that they should just Find where the story takes them. No, no, no. That's what novel writers do. Novel writers have a lot of freedoms that screenwriters don't because screenwriting is about architecture. And if you're a writer who's truly, truly stuck, then you just didn't do enough work beforehand. You didn't plan out your story. The only stuck that you should be is, how do I make this scene interesting? How do I create conflict in this scene? How do I do this scene and make it unfold in a way that I haven't seen before? That's where you might get stuck. And if you're stuck, the quick answer is that you do the generic. You should know what the default version of this scene is, the uninteresting version of that scene is. And if you're truly stuck, my advice would be write the generic version of the scene and maybe you'll do something different in the next scene. Because if some of the time you're using completely generic scenes and some of the time you're really taking things to the next level, you are golden. And as I've said, a lot of the people who hire me often are stuck. I I want people not to be afraid to do that. If you're stuck on a script, there's worse things you can do than get some feedback on it in terms of why are you stuck, what work needs to be done in order for you to move forward, or perhaps providing permission to move on or move on for now. You can always go back to stuff later, but you don't want to waste time. That's like my biggest thing right now. I I truly believe that writers will only spend so much time attempting screenwriting because there's so little benefit to it when you're not succeeding and during those formative years. So you really have to make sure that the, the shots that you take are the best possible shots. 
And here's a great example. Um, so I've been doing concept consultations. And first of all, it's really interesting. Usually when clients get in touch about having me do a script consultation, as I've said, I am happy to talk to writers before they hire me. I want people to be really clear on what they're getting. I want to get a sense if they, I feel any red flags in the conversation that make me think that this person might not be a great client for me. Um, because if they have unrealistic expectations, I don't want that person as a client because then they could go and start writing shit online and stuff. And it's not, um, and, and that could be, so the interesting thing about the concept consultations is that writers more often, when somebody, when somebody gets in touch to possibly read their screenplay, a large amount of those people will hire me after that conversation because I'll answer their questions, they have something, they know they need feedback, and they're ready to go. Um, the funny thing is that more and more people are getting in contact with me about the concept consultation, and they always say, oh, well, I'll be back in a couple weeks, and then it's so weird. I never hear from them again at a much higher percentage than people who have a screenplay. And you know, the funny thing is, it's the exact wrong way to go about it. Like, I think the reason for that might be partially value in terms of, is it really worth paying somebody a hundred bucks? And I find it so ridiculous because it's got to be worth a hundred dollars to find out what you should be writing. I had a client recently who had 13 different ideas. They were one sentence log lines. And the one that actually worked that we ended up spending most of the hour talking about was the one out of the 13 that he didn't want to include and that he thought of deleting because he didn't see any value in it. But I did, and I was able to explain to him, this is why it's a great movie idea because you've done a reversal on an incredibly generic idea. He had just thought of it as a generic idea and hadn't given himself the points or the imagination room to realize that he had accidentally stumbled onto something incredibly original. And I think that's the value of something like this. I've actually seen no capacity, and this is true of often professional screenwriters as well. They don't really have the filter. All of their ideas feel like they're sort of on equal footing, and they don't necessarily know which one to write. Now, a professional writer is going to spend some time talking to their manager and agent about these are the things that I might want to work on next. Unrepresented writers don't have that. They write in a vacuum. They end up spending years of their lives working on scripts that have no value and no commercial value. And if a script has no commercial value, then you're probably not going to get a, a lot of help developing it. And that's why it's so important to start with something that's commercial and a concept that really works. The other concept consultation I did was of the variety where the writer submitted a five-page treatment. And you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to send me up to five pages of whatever you want. So here she just had one idea she had been working on. And it didn't work on any level. It fit into a particular genre. She didn't use a lot of elements of the genre. And it just wasn't working. She knew it wasn't working. And the question is, what now? And it's funny because I spent some of the call a little bit frustrated, at least 20 minutes, where I said, well, these are some movies and these are why these movies work and these are the elements they have in common. And you need to see this movie and that movie and the other thing. But I... I don't see these things in your concept. And part of the reason for that was because she admitted she backed into the concept. She originally had a concept about X, and then in the rewrite, she did something very different. And in the rewrite, she sort of followed a different character and shook things up a little bit. And suddenly she jumped from point A to point B to point C, but didn't actually start with something solid that works. And that's a real problem. You can't back into a movie concept most of the time. But you can do it 
if you're identifying the elements that aren't working in a really fundamental way. What I said was, okay, let's try this a little bit differently. Let's brainstorm a little bit differently. Let's just go through this treatment and talk about it as if it was working, but we need what changes we would make to it. And very quickly, we hit on something, which was that the ticking clock was out of place. So I said, what if we just had a far more intense ticking clock? What if the events took place over four or five days as opposed to a month? And suddenly the ticking clock actually became the concept because it was so impossible to think that these types of events would happen in four to five days that it actually became the core of the movie that she's now working on because then everything else fell into place. It was like, wow, this is so ridiculous that this would happen in four or five days that that actually became really interesting and provided a fuel and an engine to everything else that was happening that made other things fall into place. Of course, there were still elements that needed to be addressed, but it just worked so much better. And we could then get excited about it. And we felt that energy and we were able to talk about it. And it just became an interesting conversation. And that's when you know that things are working. That's when you know that a concept is worth pursuing. So if you're in a place where you can watch a movie trailer, I highly recommend you do that so that you can get a lot more out of this particular segment. I'm going to be talking about the Fifty Shades of Grey trailer that has just been released. It's been a phenomenon of a trailer. It's got over 20 million views on YouTube. And of course, this is based on the best-selling book. And because of the way that the industry works now, best-selling books are often adapted in incredibly faithful ways where Hollywood used to just take the rights to something and do whatever they wanted and make whatever creative choices seem the most expedient. Today, they really want to give the viewers the experience of reading the book. And in this case, we have a situation where a young, impressionable female journalist meets a business titan named Christian Grey, and the journalist is initially intimidated by him, and very quickly they start a tawdry sexual relationship where it turns out that he is very, very much into bondage, sadomasochism. He ends up introducing her to this world. This book became a phenomenon because of that, where it simply gave readers an exploration into this other world of activities that they might not have been familiar with before. The thing about this trailer is that it really sets everything up in extremes. The trailer starts off, first of all, with a twisted version of Beyonce's Crazy in Love, which I really like. And if you notice, in a lot of movie trailers, they do that today, where they'll use a warped version of a big pop hit. And they warp it in a way that really gets across the tone of the film that they're trying to market. So we see Anastasia getting off an elevator. We see Gray Enterprises on the wall. And we find out that she is there to interview him. Now, some of these elements come across really well because of performance and in terms of hairstyle and costume design. But we see that she's frumpy. We see that she's got a beautiful face, a nice body, but she's essentially very frumpy. Her hair is kind of messy. She's wearing an ill-fitting sweater. And she's very unsure of herself, which is the exact opposite of what Christian Grey is. Christian Grey is a business titan whose name is on the wall, by the way. It says Grey Enterprises. He's not just a very successful businessman. He's a titan, and he's incredibly young. It represents a different level of success by having his name on the wall. So the thing I want to talk about very specifically is that we see all of the trappings of success. And if you're writing something, especially where you're dealing with a character who's incredibly successful, or I would suggest a character who's incredibly anything, a character who 
really embodies something, you're going to want to make a list of all of the cool shit and all of the cool toys that this character has. So it was a creative decision to have Christian Grey working for Grey Enterprises because it made it his company. Um, it's a creative decision to have a sharply dressed assistant walking Anastasia into his office. You know, the, somebody didn't just point, a secretary didn't just point from behind the desk and say, go in. No, we're going to be led into the office. And that's something that exists when you're dealing with incredibly high-powered people. The office itself has an incredible view. That's a decision. His apartment, we see in the trailer, has an incredible view with a piano. That's a really big thing to have a piano in an apartment. And we also see the trappings of success in terms of the fact that very quickly we see that he has a helicopter. We see him riding in a limo. We see them at a nice dinner party inside of a very, very expensive looking apartment. And then we see them in a glider that he's flying himself. And it's interesting because that's sort of probably taken from the Thomas Crown Affair. My guess is that there's a lot of Thomas Crown Affair elements in this story. But the glider is interesting because it's now the second plane that we've seen Christian Grey own in about 35 seconds. So a couple of other elements that are clear in this trailer, one of which is if she is so naive and so innocent and he is so experienced, how are they a match? Because that's something a lot of writers don't take into account. And the easy way that you do this, the way that you show the characters belong together, is that they have incredibly effective banter. Think of it like a tennis match. If he says something, then she's got to be able to make the return. And that is her value. And that is all the value that we actually have to give her. It doesn't matter that he's a billionaire and that she has five roommates and probably sleeps on a couch or something, that his watch costs more than everything that she owns in her life. None of that matters as long as when he says something, she can bat it right back in his face. Here's the example. He says to her, I exercise control in all things. And she looks back at him and says, you must be really boring. And right there, she's undermined him. She's negged him. Now, some of you longtime listeners know that I strongly suggest reading the book The Game by Neil Strauss. He talks about what negging is, and this is a perfect example of it, except it's a gender reversal negging. It's a woman dealing with a guy who's actually up on a pedestal, and she's got to knock him off of it. And as long as she can do that, she is his match in terms of cinema rules. Maybe not so much in real life, but definitely in the movies. So that is a challenge. When she says, you must be really boring, he's got to prove that he's not. Also in this trailer, and again, we're not, we're not talking about the whole movie. We're just talking about what's in this two and a half minute trailer, which is mostly just visuals. He says to her, I don't do romance. My tastes are very singular. You wouldn't understand. And her response, her challenge to that is, enlighten me then. What she's saying there is, I'm game. I'm down for whatever this crazy shit that you're into is. I want to find out about it, and I want to learn more about you. And then as he's saying, I don't do romance. My tastes are very singular. We see him pulling out a drawer, and we see a blindfold. It's really getting across the idea that he's going to take her down this road of exploration. And then we see him literally unlocking a secret room. That is the last toy, which, of course, it's filled with toys, but the secret bondage room, the secret room with all these sex toys and devices and things to tie her up, is something that only an incredibly rich person could probably afford. 
And that is the final step, I guess, in the creation of this billionaire's world. Interestingly, I have not read the book, so I don't know exactly what happens. I can take some guesses. But the fun part about this is that we actually see one shot that tells us a little bit about their relationship. Because we see Christian Grey punching a guy that Anastasia is about to kiss outside of a club or something like that. And it shows that this is her in. That when he says, I don't do romance, my tastes are singular, I'm only interested in sex and only interested in this very, very narrow definition of sex and sexual activity, she's going to show him that there's more to it. She's going to show him that there's more to romance and emotion. And there's a side of interpersonal relationships that he is not in touch with. And we get a little bit of insight into why that is, because he makes a comment to her like, I had a very difficult past. Something that suggests, I don't remember the exact line, but it suggests that he comes from an incredibly broken, probably abusive background. And this has manifested in his adult life with incredible business success, but also an inability to carry on a normal adult relationship. And that's what she's going to teach him about. She's going to teach him to behave. She's going to tame the wild beast. And the fun part about this story, and maybe the reason that it's so successful and that it hit a nerve, because even though a lot of people look down on this book in terms of a literary property, maybe that's fair. I only read a couple pages of it. I'm not a literary expert. I only look at books to determine, is this going to make a good movie? But the element in play here, is she going to tame the beast? And that's actually a direct reversal of what we see in movies like Basic Instinct, where the femme fatale is often broken. She's often had a really tough life. And she's emotionally closed off. She's a, often a sexual firecracker, but she is not capable of carrying on a normal adult relationship. She's not capable of interacting in the market of feelings. And that is something that our hero often is attempting to bring her closer to. He is attempting to tame her. And here we have the female empowerment version of that because she is attempting to tame the wild beast. And I I find that a really interesting reversal that I hadn't thought of until I just spoke it aloud here. That's all for this week. Please borrow my book on Kindle. You can actually borrow it now. I make money every time you do that. Also, please leave a review for my book on the Amazon website. You can hire me to read your script or to do a console consultation at officialscreenwriting.com, where you can also sign up for my mailing list. Highly recommend that. At my website, I also have some film analyses that I'm writing, but not necessarily talking about on the podcast. And, of course, email me with any questions at thestarterscreenplay at gmail.com. I'm Adam Levenberg. Thanks for listening.